Hey, well, good to see you, everyone. I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. That's a mouthful. 1 and 2 Thessalonians are two of the earliest letters that we have in our New Testament. They're toward the end of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We're going to have it on the screen here in just a moment. Paul wrote this letter to a young church that was an awesome church. They were so awesome that this brand new little church became known throughout the whole region. And Paul wrote this letter for two reasons. The first was to say, thank you, God, that they are so awesome and faithful. The second reason he wrote this letter was to remind this young, awesome church to stay awesome and faithful. And so we're in this series, this is the second week, because we believe that the reminders to stay faithful have just as much relevance in our church's life as it did in theirs. And so the big picture themes that we see in this letter to the Thessalonian church are these. Stay strong. Stay strong in the midst of a lot of difficulty and struggle and opposition. Last week we looked at how the church started and dude, it was rough. So he says stay strong. The second thing he's going to remind them in this letter is to stay holy in the midst of an immoral and wild culture. The third thing he's going to say is stay awake. Stay awake is his way of saying keep your eyes open because Jesus is going to come and rescue you and renew the world and you got to keep your eyes peeled. Even though it looks dark now, stay awake and hope. Then the fourth thing he reminds us in this letter is to stay together because one of the temptations is that we ought to go and do it alone. But he says, no, 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 stay together. We're stronger together. You're holy together, and you can stay awake in hope, but stay together. Tonight, we're in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at 12 verses where Paul shifts his focus from this awesome church that we saw in chapter 1, and he's going to turn his attention to him. And at first blush, it's going to sound like he's talking about how awesome he is. But really what Paul is doing is telling us, reminding us, reminding this church of a very important principle. And that principle is this. How matters. What I mean by that is how you do what you do matters. How you say what you say matters. And to illustrate this point, I'm going to show you two words on the screen. You ready? Okay? It says, it's okay, right? To illustrate this principle of how matters, I'm going to use these two little words, and I want you to imagine that I took a step right off of this stage, and I knock over the candle, it catches this napkin on fire, I tumble into the pew, and I do a graceful ninja-like move to where I put out the candle and I jump up and I put my arms up and I say, it's okay. The fire's out. I looked pretty awesome doing it. And you would probably, after you're finished laughing, you would probably believe me that it's okay. Now, same two words, different thought experiment. Now imagine me 
muttering around and pacing around my house, and I'm grouchy and I'm grumpy, and my lovely wife comes up to me and says, hey, is everything all right? And I just mutter under my breath, it's okay, it's okay. Now, what Amy knows is this dude better grow up. That's a cry for help. What's his problem? Because it ain't okay. And y'all probably wouldn't believe your friend for a second if they just go, it's okay. Why? Because how matters, right? Communication theorists say that the content of our message, the words of our message, really only account for 5 to 7% of meaning, okay? So the words that I say to you account for about 5 to 7% of how it's received. Now, the other 93 to 95% of your communication really is all about how. How you say it in your tone of voice, how you live it in your body. This is the reason why marriage and friendships and family is hard. Because you can say the right things, but your tone and your body language, the how, can sometimes really show you what you're really meaning. And it's the same in every area of life. How matters. And how, in particular, matters when you're trying to confess this amazing message that Jesus is king and that life and forgiveness and love is found in him. And you want to go out and declare this and say, yes, please understand life is in him. But the how matters because if you're not demonstrating what you're declaring, if you're not practicing what you're preaching, all of a sudden the whole thing gets called into question. And it's about as thinly veiled as, it's okay. How matters. And Paul knows this to be true, and he's reminding this young church, hey, remember how I lived among you, and remember how I didn't live among you. Because this message doesn't need to just be declared, it also needs to be demonstrated, and the how matters. Let's look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to verse 12. You can stay seated. You can follow along on the screen. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I don't usually read from this, but I like it a lot because I think it gets at, in real everyday language, what Paul is trying to say to us tonight. So he starts in chapter 2, verse 1. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet, our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. He goes on and says, So you can see that we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news or gospel. I love this. Our purpose is to please God, not people, because he alone examines the motives of our hearts. And never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. 
And as for human praise, we've never sought it from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you. But instead, we were like little children among you. Or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. In fact, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. And you you yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. How we do what we do matters. The first half of what we just read is Paul saying, here's how I did not live among you. And then he shifts gears and starts talking about how he's like a child and a mother and a father, how he worked hard. Then he said, this is how I did live among you. So the first half of this talk is going to unpack the how he didn't. And then the last half is going to be how he did. And throughout, I hope that you see what I want you to see. And that is how you live, how you speak, how you love matters to a watching world. To a world that has an idea of what Jesus is about, and to a world that has an idea of what Jesus' people are about, but they get all kinds of mixed messages, not only from social media and the news, but from our very lives when we confess Jesus and deny him with our lifestyle. How matters to a watching world, and life, and love, and embrace, and transformation is on the line. So how matters. So first Paul says, here's how he didn't do it. Last week, if you were with us or if you listened online, we talked about the story of how the Thessalonian church was founded. And they were founded amidst a pretty gnarly experience. People in the city were outraged that Paul came around saying, there's another king, his name is Jesus, and you can get on board with him, and it's going to change your whole life. Well, it wasn't just Thessalonica that Paul was going around saying that. He was going around all the known world and saying, hey, Jesus is king, get on board. Right before he came to Thessalonica, and this is what Paul is referencing at the beginning of what we just read. Right before he came to Thessalonica, he stopped over in a town called Philippi. Toby just read from the letter to the Philippians. All these books that we have with the weird names in the New Testament are Paul going back and writing an email back to these people that he had met and shared the good news with, and he's going to write to them for some purpose. So Philippi was where he was before Thessalonica. And guess what? He says the same message, and he gets the same kind of treatment. People don't like it. Guess what? Today, people don't like to be told what they ought to do. But Paul and Silas persisted. Then what happens is pretty gnarly. I don't think I would still be a preacher if 
what happens to me happen, or excuse me, what happened to them happens to me. Because what happened was they stripped these dudes naked in the center of the town. Then, once they're ashamed and embarrassed, they get some whips and sticks and they spank their bare naked bodies in the middle of all of these people. This is a shameful thing for anybody, much less some guys that say we are wise and we've got a message you ought to listen to. This kind of ruins their cred, you'd think. But what Paul does is say, no, 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 no. You need to understand that because we still persisted in proclaiming boldly in the face of shame and torture and even imprisonment, because to strip them and beat them was not enough. Then in Acts 16, you can read all about it. They throw them into the darkest place of the jail. But God rescues them. But all of this, he says, look, you've got to understand that this did not dissuade me or deter me. And what he wants us to see is that this is how you know we are buying what we're selling. This is how you know our message is true. I am not some used car salesman that wants your respect and your fame and your adulation and affirmation and money. I believe so deeply in this message that I will face persecution and opposition and even shame and embarrassment in my life because Jesus is true. And this is so important. Because the Thessalonians were used to guys coming to their town and saying, here's how you ought to live. Thessalonians were used to the kinds of people we encounter at the state fair that want to sell you the wonder mop. I'm looking at you, Amy Kahn. They were hip to the kinds of people that wanted to present you something so that they could get something from you in return. In fact, this was so common that the philosophers that were trying to tell people how to live and think were like the rock stars of the ancient world. It's kind of hard to believe because now we've got Kim Kardashian and Miley Cyrus and I don't know, Justin Bieber, is he still a thing? We have all of these people that are dissuading and and, uh, forming public opinion. Those people back then were the Greek philosophers. And when they would come to town, they would come to town a lot like the actors and actresses and Hollywood stars and rock stars of today. They would come with their entourage in order to make a big show of it so that you could get a crowd. And so these Greek philosophers would come in, the kinds you heard about in high school history class, and they had people just dying to sit down and get a little piece of what they're selling. Now the Thessalonians would have been keeping an eye on this, and they would have waited for these kind of people to start to pass the baskets. You hear me? Because these guys didn't really have tenure as much in the universities They were dependent on their entourage to support them. This becomes a big deal when we just read earlier Paul saying, Hey, y'all remember? I didn't become your friend so I could get to your wallet. You remember when Paul said later, We worked day and night and toiled day in, day out. This is Paul being strategic. Because he knows how these guys do it. He says, here's how we did not live among you because how matters. And he, in this instance, is going to work and make tents. 
That was his occupation. He'd make tents for people to live in, to set up in, in the marketplace. And while he worked with his hands, he's preaching and teaching anybody to come in about the new king named Jesus. And he says, how matters? Because in that day, they were expecting philosopher rock stars to live on the backs of the poor. And Paul said, no, 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 I'm different. Because I want you to see that my message is different. And the only thing it's costing you is going to be your life. And you're going to have to reorient everything around that. And when you give your money, I'm sending it straight away down the pike to care for the poor and the other churches. And it's interesting because in other places where he goes to Corinth later, he's going to tell them, hey man, here y'all should probably pay me because I'm preaching and teaching and being a pastor. So Paul is not... Um, he's not contradicting himself. What Paul is doing is saying how matters in a certain position. How you talk to your grandmother is probably different than how you talk to your girlfriend. How matters. And Paul is saying, hey, Thessalonians, I know that you're used to seeing these guys come in and make a big stink of it. Then he says, I know that you're probably thinking that I would be like one of those philosophers who while they're preaching, they're scanning the crowd and they're locking eyes with some of the groupies to single out for some private instruction. So when Paul says in what we just read, no, 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 wait, you know I was blameless and faultless and righteous. You know I'm not like these other charlatans just trying to get somebody in my bed. This was a big deal, and you see it in other letters of the New Testament. These guys come around while the husbands go to work. Hey, let me tell you more about this wonderful message I've got for you. The Thessalonians were used to people coming around just so they could get more followers on Instagram and Twitter and friends on Facebook. And he says, I don't care at all about the praise from people. If I did, I probably wouldn't get beaten up so much. What I care about is you get this message into your bones and it transforms you because when it transforms you, it transforms your relationships. It transforms your relationship to money and sex and power and then it begins to transform the world. That's what I care about. So that you could be a fertile soil in which God can work and move and I don't care if you like me. This is what we've got to understand Especially because in our world today, we are at every turn tempted to please people. I've got to tell you, I am a people pleaser. And that is a dangerous position to be in as a pastor. Because I want you to like my sermon. I want you to like going to lunch with me. I want you to like what I say. I want you to like who I am. And the same is true of you, I think, if you'd be honest about it. When you go and meet someone new, when you want to go and kind of assert who you are and you kind of how you talk about yourself and you want to please others and they're sometimes unrealistic expectations. But the danger of people pleasing is this. If the well in which you are drawing your identity from is the affirmation and adulation of people. When that person goes, and when you can't please this person over here, 
And when all of a sudden this begins to dry up and the tide against you begins to turn and that well goes down to empty, what do you do with your identity then? What do you do with your self-worth then? This is why repeatedly in our church and in our life with God, we're trying to say your primary identity is a beloved child of the Father because when they go, he won't. And it's the reason why we sing these songs, I am who you say I am, because I'm constantly running out into the world to get you to tell me who I am. And when I don't live up to your expectations, I'm crushed. But if we would build our life on the firm foundation of Jesus and who we are as children of his beloved Father, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God who's forming us and moving us and growing us and changing us, then all of a sudden we're free. Because I'm free to act and be and speak in such a way where the how is only to please the right audience, and that is the audience of my Father. Not out of some sense of obligation because he's going to get me. Hear this. The father is not perched on a cloud with lightning bolts. I'm sorry, but you've been listening to the wrong kinds of philosophers. You've been listening to some people who want to swindle you into believing that you've got to please God and just move your people pleasing into pleasing God. When Paul talks about pleasing God, he's saying, I'm trying to live from my true identity. And when Paul says in other letters, even when I blow it, even though I don't do the things I want to do, he says, guess what? There's no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. So when they condemn you, when they spit upon you, when they laugh at you, when they reject you, you have to go back to the source that says, you know what? You are actually pleased with me. And the thing that you've got to understand is that Jesus wants the you of today, not the 10 years more spiritual and mature version. The lie that I have lived too much of my life guiding and directing my how has been to be something that I'm not sure he's ever asked me to be. All he wants is the you of this moment to turn your face and your feet toward Jesus. Because he can work with that. And he loves you as much now as he did when you did the very coolest and best Jesus thing you ever did. Because grace and mercy are not contingent upon your performance. They're contingent upon the person who is himself grace and truth. Hello? So the more you go out and try to find their affirmation, the more you go out and try to feed off of how many likes you get on social media, how many people understand you, the more you are drifting away from your true center and that is beloved child of a father who loves you immeasurably more than you could ever ask or earn. Because grace by definition is unearned favor. And mercy, by definition, is getting what you don't deserve. And even if you did deserve it, and even at your best, he delights to give you what you need, and he will never stop loving you. And I don't want you to ever hear someone else tell you that it's God's love plus something. That it's your effort that it's your performance that will merit God's love. 
That is a lie from the accuser. And that will poison your soul and poison your relationships because you're going to keep drifting from your center and that is beloved child of a beloved father. When Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, he's talking about rooting and making your home in a love that will never leave you or reject you even when they do. And the reason we get our marriages so screwed up, the reason we get our relationships so screwed up, the reason we get our checkbooks so screwed up is because we keep drifting away to please them and not live as one who is pleasing to our Father. So live out of that reality, and you won't try to perform. You'll just try to live into who you really are. Because later on in verse 12, he says, so live lives worthy of God. What he's talking about is live your actual identity. When you screw up and you blow it and you've messed it up, that's not you. That's not you. That is some version of you that still persists, but God is forming and remaking and saying, it's okay, we can work with this, and I'm drawing you closer and closer to who you really are. This is what he's talking about. The danger of people pleasing is that it kills us, it hurts our witness, and the, tr- the struggle is we've got to continually be reflecting on this question, what is my purpose in this? A purpose is a reason for being or reason for acting. And even the good things we do in serving and praying and loving can still be at trying to get your attention and not living into the only one whose attention I really need. What's my purpose in this? I love how Paul says it. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. That's another question. If God were to dig around and look in my heart, what's the originating source that leads to my acting and saying and doing and being? Jesus talks about this to put some kind of flesh and blood on it. In Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about three awesome things that Christian people ought to do. He talks about giving money to the poor. He talks about praying and he talks about fasting, which is like spiritual disciplines that help us kind of push down that false version of ourselves and inflate and, and help us live into who we really are. Giving money to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And at each turn, Jesus talks about people who give money so they can rattle these cash buckets so you can see, look how much I did, y'all. Look how much I did. And then he talks about praying and he talks about the kind of religious people that go around and they put their hands up and they're saying, oh God, oh, I'm so great. And then he talks about how when you fast, you want to look like really bunk and really messed up. Because these bags under my eyes, man, y'all, I'm telling you, I can't eat lunch today. I'm fasting. He says, no, 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 put some rouge on, put some lipstick on, wash your hair, get out there and pretend like everything's peachy. Don't lie. But he's saying at every point, giving to the poor and prayer and fasting, he's saying, you know what? Go and do it in the secret place to reorient your heart to where you're not pleasing them and you're trying to live out of your true identity to please the one who is already pleased. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. This is what Jesus says later in Matthew when he says, all you religious folks that go around talking about how awesome you are and how great you are, he says, he quotes Isaiah and he says, you praise me with your mouth and your hearts are far from me. Jesus knows that the how matters. And these disciplines of trying to bring our how, our purpose, our motives of how we speak and act, if we bring these into line with Jesus in the kingdom, it gives us freedom to act 
how he would act. And it also gives us the freedom to move about this world that even if they say all these kinds of things against you, you're living out of your center that says, God, you're enough. You and me, we got this. This is how Paul didn't live as some of these swindler and phony philosophers. And then he shifts gears and he says, but here's how I do live among you. And here's the thing we need to take away as we approach the last half of what he's saying in chapter 2. He says, look, how leaders love their people matters. How leaders love their people matters. Paul's reminding the Thessalonians, guys, not only did I not try to get your money, try to swindle you, try to trick you, he says, I'm also giving you my message and I'm giving you my very life because here's the thing that you've got to understand today. What's true now is what's true then, and that is simply this. The content of what you say is only legitimized by your character. The content of what you say is only legitimized by your character. If Paul is trying to paint this picture of how I lived among you matters in showing you how to live in this kingdom of God, he says, don't you know that I could have thrown my weight, which is how the Greek literally reads at the end of verses 6 and 7, He says, I'm an apostle. Bro, that's on my business card. Paul defines what he means by apostle in another letter. And he says, I'm somebody that's seen the risen Jesus. How many of you have seen Jesus face to face? If you want to, you can tell me about it and we'll see. But probably not. But not only has he seen the risen Jesus, he's been sent by the risen Jesus. That word apostle that you heard in church, Catholic day school, was the apostle Peter was somebody who is not just seeing Jesus, but apostle means a sent one. So he says, I've been approved, y'all. I am legit, y'all. And he says, you should know this because as I'm writing this letter back to you, when you remember how I lived, you ought to know that my character legitimized the content. My demonstration of living under King Jesus legitimized the declaration that he actually is who he says he is and he can change your life too. Have you ever met somebody that says, you know what, I'm done with the church. I'm burned by the church. It's a common phrase, right? Here's the thing I've been thinking about this week. It's really difficult for an institution to really affect someone, right? that deeply. Now, what's going on in the Catholic Church with our Catholic brothers and sisters is abhorrent, and it's dark, and it's sinful, and it's hellacious, and it's horrible. But the thing is, there is this institutional reality of covering up and these horrible things. But you know what? At the end of the day, I kind of wonder if I were to meet the next person that says, I'm done with the church, I'm burned by the church, I almost want to say to this person, who hurt you? Because nine times out of ten, it's not a what, an it, an institution. It's almost always a who. Who? And there are people in this room and there are people on this stage that have been abused spiritually by people who come at me with a rod 
and condemnation and guilt. And so what Paul says is, no, no, no. When I came to you, he says, I could have thrown my weight around. But then he says this strange thing, and he uses family language. And he says, I'm like a child. Some of your Bibles might say gentle. There's the Greek word that is, um, that is for gentle. And then the word for infants is if you add an N at the front. So one letter, some people thought, oh, he must mean gentle because it's weird to say I'm like a little kid. But we think, I think, that he's using this language. No, 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 I was like an infant among you. I didn't come in guns blazing to force you. I came in innocent, humble, completely just here. This is me. This is what you get. Then he shifts gears in verse 7. He says, in fact, I was kind of like a mother. And the language he uses is really shocking and intimate. He says, I was like a young mother nursing you kids. Like you were my own. How does a mother nurse him? Hey, come on, time to eat. And that's as much as I'm going to give you. No. With tenderness, with affection and love. And then later on he says, now I'm also kind of like a father. And it's all these ways of grasping at, I loved you so deeply. And how leaders love their people matters because if you are following the shepherd Jesus, you yourself as a shepherd ought to look like Jesus. And it's a weighty call and it matters how we love. And then I love what he says in verse 8. With this family language, he even shows us and reminds us. He says, no, remember that we loved you so much. That we shared with you not only our message, but our lives. And the words that he's getting at with our own lives is like our souls. He says, dude, I opened up my heart to you and my life. And I went for it and I got real. There was this deep and holistic sharing of life. And here's the message for us. I believe that our neighbors, our friends, our culture is more hmm, connected in the sense of technology and social media. But the studies in our own hearts are showing we're actually more disconnected than we've ever been in human history. That on some level, I can call my buddy in Russia and Tijuana at the drop of a hat but I still feel incapable of having close and deep and meaningful relationships. I'd rather settle for some other version of that. And I believe that our neighbors and our culture, they're looking for something real. They're looking for something authentic. Nobody just goes to church anymore because it's a thing to do. Because I think they're tired of the perception of the fake smiles and the best dressed and just doing another thing like you would go and do the movies. What's the difference in some of our churches, some of our places, some of us that show up, that sit for an hour and change, and we get up and we walk out? How many people do you talk to when you go to AMC? Probably none. You don't even talk to the person you went with because you're going to get kicked out. When he uses family language, when he talks about sharing our lives, the question for us is, how are you invited to share deeply and holistically? And then you immediately go, whoa, whoa, no! 
And what I'm here to tell you is this. If church is a family, you can come to this church who values community, but it's up to all of us to work and live community. It's up to us as a two-way street to foster relationships. I'm really going to be careful here. I really want to think about how I'm going to say what I'm going to say. But a lot of times, I've been guilty of saying what some of you have been guilty of saying. Well, I'm just not really connected. And then I say, yeah, what do you mean? Nobody wants to go to lunch with me. Oh, so you asked somebody? No, I haven't asked somebody in eight months. And so here's, the, here's where I want to say, because at some point, like, you know, in eight months, would we be people that is trying to outdo one another in opening our hearts and our homes to each other? But also, when we do that, would you reciprocate? The thing about relationships, it's, it's a two-way give and take. And would you even think about this month or this week opening your heart or your home to someone who's not in your neighborhood group, who's not in your discipleship group? And if you're not in a neighborhood group or a discipleship group, here's a great way to show up and be able to have an opportunity to let someone share their heart and their home with you. And you can get in. You can talk to Pastor Kathy about that. You can talk to me about that. You can talk to Bud about that. We want to be a place that doesn't just value community. We work at community. Here's why. Because transformation happens when you know someone and you are known by someone. Transformation happens when we know God. And the way to know God is not just to sit here and hear about him like science or math or some other subject. At some point, no one's going to have a relationship with God for you. It's got to be person to person, subject to subject, sitting down in stillness and saying, here I am, where are you, work. The same is true with God as is God's people. And this is the thing, I've got to tell you, it's scary and messy and hard, which is why I have this second question. What's preventing you? Because sometimes naming things has a way of changing things. What's preventing you from sharing life? I just don't know them. We don't have anything in common. The church, historically, has always been the one place on earth where the slave and the slave owner should be able to sit at table together. It's the one place where the rich and the poor can sit at the table together. The church is a fellowship of difference. That's what makes it different from the country club down the road. That's what makes it different. What's preventing you from sharing life? Well, is it a fear of being known? That is a legitimate fear. And here's why I think it's so important that you realize that when you begin to share of yourself, it opens the door and invites the other to reciprocate and share. And it's hard. And what happens when they don't reciprocate? You get hurt, you get wounded, but I'm telling you, maybe you need to keep coming back and you need to work it out because this is something that doesn't just happen. It's something that takes work and forgiveness. And this is why I will always say we leverage everything in this church on relationships because you can't learn to forgive the other, love the other, share with one another, bear each other's burdens without an other. And that's why we will never be content at the neighborhood church to be your AMC movie theater substitute. Because what really shapes us and transforms us is if you would take a step and we all take a step together to live and share life together. But here's the trick. The how matters. 
how we welcome our neighbors and difference and friends and multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational matters to a watching world. Oh, you're no different from that country club. Oh, I know that church. It's no different from this. How we serve and how we bless, how we do what we do matters. Because at the end of the day, in the end of this talk, Paul says, we pleaded with you, encouraged you, urged you, pushed you in a loving way to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. Because he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. God is pleased with you, and we reciprocate and say, we want to please you. We want to share in what you've got going. Yours is the kingdom, not mine. Yours is the power, not mine. Yours is the glory, not mine. But God delights in letting us in and partnering and participating with him. I want to close with a reminder from my friend, the late Chuck Miller. Chuck Miller was kind of the granddaddy and grandfather of a spiritual formation training for leaders in Southern California that several people in this church, in the life of this church, had participated in. His name is Chuck Miller, and he had this wonderful way of just getting some great, big, and wonderful truths into these sticky little ways of remembering and enacting. And one of the things he always said is this, sometimes in these kinds of talks and these kinds of messages, when we're like, man, how do I speak and how do I do this? That's a lot of thinking and reflecting and all this. And he says, no, no, no. Whenever you feel this way, just wake up and remember that you've always got two envelopes waiting for you in your heart's mailbox. He was also beautifully, wonderfully cheesy. But it works, man. It makes me remember. And he says, you got two envelopes and you got to open them up in order. And the first one you open up and you pull out this invitation. It's not an invitation to a birthday party or a baby shower. The invitation is Jesus' words to you today, where you are, who you are, not the more, ver in, uh, the more mature version of you. And these are the words on the invitation. Come to me. It's Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and broke down and burned out on religion, who can't do a dang thing right. He says, come to me. Come to me so you can learn from me how to live the way I live because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You can work and rest and walk with me. Come to me. You set that invitation down, you open up the second invitation that is in your heart's mailbox every single morning, and it's Jesus again, and it's his words, follow me. Because you can't follow Jesus until you come to Jesus. But once you come to Jesus and you learn the unforced rhythms of work and rest and being loved, and knowing and being known, then you can stand up and you can move out into the world in freedom and you can go and declare that I know personally, in spite of opposition, in spite of all the people that have given him a bad name that you see on TV and that you've seen in your life, I know personally he is asking you too to come. And I'm asking you to come follow with us. 
That's what changes us. That's what changes our world. And that we would be people that live like Jesus and speak like Jesus and love like Jesus because how we do these things matters to a watching world. To our kids and our coworkers, they're watching us. They're watching how we spend and speak and invite and live and love. Your coworkers are looking at you when you struggle and are stressed and you're going to be imperfect. That's why you've got to do it with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders. We ask, Lord, that we would be a people that are with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live and love like Jesus because we can't do it on our own. And so, Lord, we thank you for this community that has helped us, shaped us, that sometimes hurt us, but you're in our midst. You're leading us toward forgiveness and life and love. And so, Lord, we just ask that your grace and your mercy would be with us and that you would invite us each day to come to you and then to come follow you as we share in your kingdom and your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through Jesus and for his sake. Amen. May the Lord bless and keep you. May you also bless your neighbors. May the Lord smile upon you and be gracious to you. May you also show grace and mercy to your neighbors. May the Lord show his favor to you and give you his peace. May you also show favor and make peace with your neighbors. Go in peace.